Hello and welcome to this podcast on the history of colonization. My name is Fidelity and this is episode 5 of the podcast. In part 1, we left off where Da Gama returned to Portugal after making his first voyage to India in 1499. In this episode, we'll be looking at Da Gama's second voyage to India. But before that, we'll look at the second expedition to India, which wasn't conducted by Da Gama, but someone else. After Da Gama returned in 1499, the Portuguese king was eager to send a second expedition to India in order to establish the trade relations that Dagama had failed to do so. But Dagama had just returned from a long two-year journey, and he was too tired to lead another expedition. And so six months later, in 1500, the next expedition was not captained by Dagama, but by Pedro Alvarez Cabral, a Portuguese nobleman from lesser nobility. Pedro Cabral was born around 1467 or 68, but surprisingly not much has been written about him, despite his major role in the supposed age of discovery. Only one biography has been written about him in English in 1914. Now Cabral differed from Columbus or Dagama who came before him. He lacked any major maritime experience, and he seemed to have been appointed to neutralize court politics and factions. Cabral prepared to set off for India, but not before receiving detailed instructions from the king on dealing with the Indians, which comprised of 25 pages that detailed various scenarios to respond accordingly to. In the instructions, Cabral was told to set up a factory at Calicut. Now this isn't the industrial factory that's probably coming to mind for you. It was more like a combination of a market, a warehouse, and a customs house where the Portuguese could profit off being middlemen in buying local goods and exporting them to Europe. This would eventually be the spark of Calicut's downfall, as we'll see later. Cabral took 13 ships with him, along with Bartolomeu Gias and Nicolau Colello, who were on board Vasco da Gama's first expedition, and they both had considerable maritime navigation experience to make up for Cabral's inexperience. Off they sailed for India in March 1500. Now, owing to Dagama's previous experience along the Roaring Forties, Cabral decided to head southwest in order to meet those currents, and his fleet landed on the northeastern coast of Brazil in May 1500. Now, if you remember the Treaty of Tordesillas, the east of the Cape Verde Islands belongs to the Portuguese and the west to the Spanish, and eastern Brazil just so happens to lie east of the line. And so it would be the only part of the Americas that the Portuguese were entitled to in their treaty with Spain. Now it's not certain if the Portuguese were aware of Brazil before Cabral claimed it officially in 1500 for the Portuguese crown. It's still a matter of historical debate whether he really came across Brazil accidentally or intentionally, with supposed information from previous explorers. But Cabral was by no means the first explorer to land in Brazil. Nevertheless, it was an official landing, and Cabral claimed Portuguese sovereignty. He would first name it the land of the true cross, Veracruz, and King Manuel would change it to Santa Cruz, but eventually it would become known as Brazil, due to the Brazil wood found there, which produces a rich red dye that the Portuguese would trade in. Once again, what we know of the indigenous people before the Portuguese arrived is completely based on archaeological evidence due to the lack of any written sources. It's also a pity that there has been almost no in-depth literature on pre-colonial Brazil too. And any information on it is mostly 
in the form of an introduction on books on Brazilian history. There were around 2.4 million people living in Brazil at the time of the Portuguese arrival, and there were numerous groups across the region. The group that Cabral and his men encountered were the Tupinamba people, who congregated around the coasts of Brazil, and lived in detached villages of around 100 to 1,000 people, with about 30 families per village, relying heavily on cassava to survive. The patriarchal structure of the society was heavily family and community-oriented. Yet, they were also often engaged in warfare with rival villages, struggling for better territory with richer resources. By the mid-17th century, however, they would be completely wiped out from the coastal areas due to colonisation, and confined to smaller areas inland. Upon reaching the coast, one of Cabral's men would write a letter to the Portuguese king, describing the people upon encounter as such, quote, They seem to me to be people of such innocence that, if we could understand them and they us, they would soon become Christians, because they do not seem to have or to understand any form of religion. For it is certain that these people are good and of pure simplicity, and there can easily be stamped upon them whatever belief we wish to give them. And furthermore, our Lord gave them fine bodies and good faces as to good men, and he who brought us here, I believe, did not do so without purpose. There were among them three or four girls, very young and very pretty, with very dark hair, long over the shoulders, and their privy parts so high, so close, and so free from hair, that we felt no shame in looking hard at them. One of the girls was all painted from head to foot with that bluish-black paint, and she was so well-built and so rounded, and her lack of shame was so charming, that many women of our land, seeing such attractions, would be ashamed that theirs were not like hers. Unquote. This description probably sounds familiar to those of you who study literary tropes. It's the idea of the noble savage, which means indigenous people who embody the lost goodness of mankind, who were seen to be uncorrupted by civilization in the wild. The sexualization of young indigenous women is also a theme that we'll come back to again. Indigenous women were often exoticized as being sexually available in contrast to European women. Surprisingly, Cabral left Brazil and its inhabitants alone. He didn't establish a fort there, mainly because he had explicit instructions to sell the calicut, but also because there were no attractive traits from the lands for the Portuguese. Instead, he simply sent a supply ship back to King Manuel, who received news of the landing in Brazil. Cabral continued sailing onwards to Calicut, but he would lose four ships while rounding the Cape of Good Hope in a storm, and another ship would stray from the fleet and come across the island of Madagascar. After making various stops along eastern African ports, Cabral took just half a year to reach Calicut, compared to Dagama who took a full year. Upon landing, Cabral seeked out the ruler of Calicut, the Zamorin, who Dagama had failed to impress two years ago. Now the Portuguese had learned from their lesson in Dagama's previous voyage, and they had brought more goods to trade with the ruler, and so initially Cabral established much better relations in Calicut than Dagama did. And the Zamorin eventually allowed the Portuguese to set up the factory that they wanted. But this did not last long. The Portuguese had competition, Arab merchants in the region who felt threatened by the newcomer. Some context on the Arab presence in Calicut here. 
You may wonder why they were the most dominant group of merchants, and not Hindus. This was due in part to the fall of prominent Hindu kingdoms, such as the Chola dynasty. There was also considerable Arab immigration during the 4th and 5th century to the region, which would further increase after the Hijra. And the Arab merchants would properly establish mutually beneficial relationships with the Zamorin by the 8th century. They were very well versed in navigation, astrology, shipbuilding, and all the skills that were required for maritime trading. And they were pretty well assimilated in Calicut, with 15,000 Arab merchants settled in. Unlike Columbus or Dagama who received the same education and maritime skills, Arab merchants were not interested in developing naval power. They were interested in trading and not military conquests. So this was the community that the Portuguese found themselves faced up against, Arab merchants, who had been well established in Calicut for centuries by 1500. The Arabs were thus hostile towards the Portuguese, and it certainly didn't help that there was religious animosity between the Muslims and Christians. Mutual suspicion on both sides eventually led the Portuguese to strike first, which led to the capture of a Muslim ship, and in retaliation, an angry mob burned the Portuguese factory to the ground, with 50 Portuguese men killed. Cabral further escalated the situation and responded by bombarding the city for two days, but upon failing to come to a truce, he sailed south to the rival states of Cochin and Kenaneu, small port towns in December 1500, just months after landing in Calicut. In particular, the ruler of Cochin was only too happy to welcome the Portuguese. Cochin was a vassal state of Calicut then, and this meant that Cochin rulers had to present tribute to the Zamorin in Calicut, and they had no proper power over their territory or economy. The Portuguese promised to restore the king of Cochin to his rightful sovereignty, and so they entered into an alliance. And this is where the Portuguese would have established their administrative base in, if they had not conquered Goa in 1510. Now it's from this port that Cabral would return to Portugal, along with Pepper from his trades. In July 1501, he landed back in Lisbon, but the king was unimpressed. Cabral had lost five ships, a sizable amount of men, and he had left an even worse impression on a local ruler than Dagama, and also left behind a failed factory. Cabral would never be sent on an expedition again, and he was passed over for Dagama when the king was assembling a fleet to take revenge in Calicut. He would retire from court and die in obscurity in 1520. Now, after the break, I'll cover Dagama's second expedition in 1502. In 1502, Dagama, with the king's support, essentially set out on a revenge mission to Calicut. There were now 20 ships in the fleet, and Dagama promised the Portuguese king that he would cover the costs of the ships. This was done not through trading, of course. The Portuguese would never be able to earn enough profit that way, with Arab domination in the trade. Instead, they resulted to piracy and plundering. The Portuguese demanded tribute from Eastern African states along the way to India, threatening them with the large warships they had brought. On the waves, one of the plunders was a ship on the way from the Red Sea and was filled with riches, 
which yielded them a tenth of the annual income of the Portuguese court. The crew of these plundered ships were treated without mercy. They were either killed or mutilated. So Dagama eventually reached Calicut, but not before signalling his displeasure to the Zamorin by capturing a pilgrim ship on the way back from Mecca. In the book The Three Voyages of Vasco da Gama, written in 1869, this incident is only mentioned in a footnote. Well, the entire quote is a bit too long to be read out in its entirety. But basically, da Gama had managed to convince the captain of the pilgrim ship to surrender by giving him gold, silver and silks, and the Portuguese would promise to leave the ship alone. But Vasco da Gama never stuck to the promise. After robbing the ship of valuable cargo, he then ordered his captains to set fire to the ship. Quote, there were in this ship about 260 fighting men, and more than 50 women and children. These moors, as long as the Portuguese took away their goods and arms, seeing so many ships around them, endured what had been done to them up to that time. But when they saw that our ship's boats were surrounding and setting fire to them, which was danger to life and not damage of property, they determined to die like knights with some arms which they had concealed, and by throwing stones they made the boats keep off. Unquote. But these arms and stones wouldn't work against the Portuguese fleet. Most of the people on the ship died that day. The next day, Dagama would pick up the 20 or so children left in the burning wreckage, and then convert them to Christianity. Having done this, Dagama marched into the city and attempted to negotiate with the Zamorin. The Zamorin, on his part, refused to completely surrender. He compromised by offering the few Muslims who were responsible for raising the Portuguese factory, but he refused to adhere to Dagama's demand that all Muslims be chased out of Calcutta, and the demand to hand over all Muslims who were guilty of attacking the Portuguese when Cabral landed two years ago. These terms were madness. Zamorin could never have agreed to them. With the Muslims having established themselves in Calicut for centuries, and the Portuguese not even establishing any sort of trading operation in Calicut. Again, Dagama resulted to what Cabral did. He bombarded the city for a day or so, but he went even further. Here I quote from K.S. Matthews' article on Calicut. Quote, when diplomacy failed, he stormed the city and massacred a whole lot of people. He sent in a boat, the heads, arms and legs separated from their trunks, as a present to the Zamorin with a letter written in the local language, saying that he had come to Calicut to sell and purchase good commodities. And this were the merchandise he could find there. Unquote. In addition, Dagama and his men killed several hundred fishermen who had innocently gone past the Portuguese fleet, either butchering them or burning them alive. To be fair, these killings were not entirely condoned by the Portuguese. There were captains under Dagama's command who attempted to talk him out of burning the pilgrim ship down. But these killings were only possible because the Portuguese saw Muslims as being subhuman and heretics beyond salvation. After having done all this, Dagama sailed on to Cochin, where he would set up factories and establish trading agreements in favour of the Portuguese. He even managed to find a group of Christians along the way, the St. Thomas Christians, thus achieving what he had set out to do in his first expedition but failed to. Establishing economic trading agreements and finding fellow Christian communities. Dagama returned to Portugal at the end of 1503 a rich man, 
He also brought back a staggering estimated 1,500 tons or 1.3 million kg of spices. This encouraged other sailors. Piracy and plunder were risky, but they did bring about great rewards if one survived, with the example of Dagama. We have a glimpse of the riches from the shipwreck of one of these ships, which was found in 1998 and excavated from 2013 to 2015 off the coast of Oman. It remains the earliest ship from the period of the supposed Age of Discovery, and it's also a very fascinating discovery to read about, because a rare coin used especially for Portuguese trade with India under King Manuel I, which was only minted from 1499 to 1504, was discovered too. Now that I've covered a timeline of Cabral's voyage to Brazil and Calicut and Vasco da Gama's second expedition, I want to conclude with some of the main characteristics of these voyages. Both commercial competition and religious animosity played a role in the start of Portuguese colonization in India. Where Brazil was not immediately of concern to the Portuguese because of their perceived lack of economic resources, the eagerness to share in a slice of the Indian Ocean trade led to conflict with the Arab merchants already present in Calicut. This greed to eventually dominate the trade in Calicut was made even more brutal due to anti-Muslim sentiments resulting from a prolonged war of the Moors back in Portugal. And men like Dagama and Cabral took these attitudes to Calicut to disastrous consequences. When compared to Columbus, this cruelty was much worse. And while both Columbus and the Portuguese explorers shared the desire to exploit economic resources, I think it's safe to conclude that the Portuguese were also encouraged by heavy suspicion and religious animosity which simply wasn't present in the Americas. At the same time, Calicut and the Arab traders were also not prepared for the Portuguese bombardments or even anticipated their brutality. Also in this episode, we see familiar signs of colonization that I've described in previous episodes. From setting up a factory and becoming economic middlemen or traders, and then making use of political rivalry and establishing political power by working with other kingdoms against Calicut, and then simply using brute force to get their way when all else failed. These are important hallmarks of colonization that will be repeated again and again. As a side note, it's essential to note that Portuguese explorations were not done in isolation. We've been looking at either Spanish or Portuguese colonization exclusively, but European merchants and states were very interested in the new discoveries too. This was especially so for the Venetians, who had somewhat of a monopoly on the spice trade and who had dominated trade with Asia for so long. For them, news of the Cape route and the landing in Calicut were concerning. We know this from Venetian diaries at the time, where there was a focus on commercial interests in Cabral's expedition in India, which clearly took priority over cultural or social observations compared to Columbus. Thus, these concerns over the beginnings of economic colonization were also clearly indicative of a sort of foreshadowing of future European competition over colonies. To conclude, I hope you enjoyed this two-parter on the start of the Portuguese meeting the Indian Ocean trade at the turn of the 16th century and the various descriptions of them making contact with East African states, Brazil and Calicut. Thank you for tuning in and see you soon.